why do bad things happen to good people? It's a really simple question. It's one that's asked often by us as human beings, but it's a hard question to answer. And there are, in fact, many answers that are given by different people in our world. I'll just give you a couple examples of these. Some people would say that we suffer because suffering's just a natural and inevitable part of the life that we live. Others would say that we suffer because the ideas of good and evil or even the cosmic realities of good and evil are constantly in tension and sometimes good gets the upper hand and sometimes evil gets the upper hand. Others might say that we suffer because though there is a higher power out there somewhere that we believe in, he doesn't much care about us. Or he's so weak or she's so weak that they can't do much about us. Now, each of these answers matter because how you view the reasons for your suffering will shape your response, especially to immense suffering. It will lead you in the depths of your agony either to despair on the one hand or to begin to have hope. And the reason for this is that when suffering overwhelms you, you do ask the hard questions. You ask yourself, why should I have hope? What are the reasons to have hope at all? If all that there is is this natural world and the universe doesn't care about me or my suffering or my loved ones, then why should I hope? If my suffering doesn't personally matter to anybody that can do anything about it or show interest in me, then why would I have hope? If we're supposed to simply embrace our pain, to be stoic about it, and get on with our lives, how does that give me hope in the depths of my suffering? If God is there but doesn't care, then why should I hope? Why shouldn't I lose myself in utter despair? Why should I have hope at all? You see, in the face of these questions, the Bible gives a different answer. The Bible actually gives a beautiful and compelling and unique reason to have hope in the face of tremendous suffering. The story of the Bible is a story of this absolutely powerful and good and loving God who's working to fix this world and the suffering that's here. The Bible is clear that the suffering of this world is here because of human sin and rebellion against him and separation from him in relationship. The Bible is clear about the story that God is moving all things forward, that he knows the end to which he has established, and he is working all things to the time when all will be made well. You see, in suffering, knowing this God and knowing this story makes all the difference. We're going to see that this morning, especially as we look at Lamentations 3. Because we'll be looking at Lamentations chapter 3 this morning. In this chapter, we'll see that in the depths of our despair, there is every reason to have hope because of who God is. This morning, our outline is very simple. We're going to look first at Lamentations 3 in the first half, consider despair. And then we'll turn to look with the author at the reason for his hope. Despair and hope. So we'll jump in right now with point one. And as we come to Lamentations 3, remember that it has been carefully crafted as a poem. This is a book made up of five poems. Lamentations 3 is the third and central poem. And it is central in its place in the book, both in its 
form and in its content. It's been carefully crafted to highlight the way the author is working to the content of chapter 3. Its form and its content both highlight that it's a crescendo of pain in the book, but also that it's moving towards a decision to hope. In first chapter 3, it begins not with hope, but with despair. A distillation of the despair of chapters 1 and 2 and all the anger and all the suffering and all the hopelessness and crying out in first-person language, inviting the listeners and the readers to lament with him. We see that in verses 1 to 18. This despairing personal cry of distress and hopelessness. We've read it already once, but I want to just read uh, for you two sections of this passage. Look at verses 1 to 3 and 16 to 18 as an example to see what I'm talking about. All of the pain of the book comes and is distilled to this moment when he says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He is driven and he's brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. He has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Every verse in these first 18 verses, they communicate this deep, horrific suffering and this feeling of being personally trampled underfoot by God himself. And the result, as the author says, is in verse 18, so I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. You see, chapter 1, it began, it began with complaints. It began with voicing frustration and pain with even an edge of anger outward toward God. How can this happen, God? How could you possibly allow this to happen to us? But this is different now here in these first 18 verses. This isn't anger any longer. This is on the other side of anger. This is bitter hopelessness and despair. When I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think of the story of Joni Erickson Tata. You see, Joni was born to a family of athletes and lived a very young and vibrant life, running and horse riding and tennis playing and swimming as a young woman. But when she was just 18 years old on a summer's day, she drove out to Chesapeake Bay and she misjudged the water's depth and she dove and she became, in that instant, a paraplegic. Joni describes the bitterness of those first years of paralysis in her own words this way, in her excellent book, When God Weeps. She said, Somewhere after the first year of lying paralyzed in my hospital bed, somewhere after my bleak prognosis drained every ounce of hope, even anger, both righteous and unrighteous, out of me, despair moved in. And I refused to get up for physical therapy. I turned my head away when friends came to visit. I didn't want to eat. 
Sounds a lot like Lamentations 3.18, doesn't it? My endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. See, Joni describes in detail the bitterness of being 18 years old and facing the crushing realities of living in a recovery home, unable to care for herself, and losing hope in all that you thought your life would be. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you feel hopeless. And yet beyond anger and on the other side of her despair, Joni called out to God. She writes, all I could do was choke out a whisper. I can't. I can't live like this. Please help me. And suddenly I realized I'm feeling something. Like a hibernating animal waking up, I felt something stir. No more emotional numbness. Instead, a magnetic pull toward hope. In the darkness, I found myself saying out loud, God, if I can't die, please show me how to live. It was short, to the point, but it left the door open for him to respond. And little did I realize that he would. And see, I, I recall the story of Joni because I think that something very similar is what's happening in real time in the poetry of chapter 3. As the author gives voice to his anger and confusion and complaints of himself and all those who suffered the horrors of the destruction to the sinful Babylonians, he feels utterly hopeless. But from that deepest valley, from that hopelessness, that's where he reaches out to God. In Lamentations 3, where verse 18 ends in hopelessness, verse 19 begins with the whisper of a prayer. And it moves to the determination of verse 21 to look to God. Look at verses 19 to 20 with me. The author writes, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it's bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore... I have hope. See, the author, he determines to call to mind. He remembers, he works hard in the bitterness of his despair to call out to God and to call to mind the character of his God. He determines not to sit there in his despair, but from his despair to fight, to remember who God is as he's revealed himself to him in his word. I want to look now with you at the second point this morning, at hope, and to see what the author calls to mind about God in verses 22 to 24. What does he remember? This. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now, I know that these are probably the only familiar words in Lamentations for you. Or at least they might be the only familiar words in Lamentations for you. But we need to remember as we read them that they were not written on a sunny day in Jerusalem when all was well. These are words that are powerful because of their context. 
powerful because the backdrop of these words are not sunny days in Jerusalem, but destruction and horror like Israel had never previously seen. They are this desperate clinging to the anchor of God's unchanging character in the midst of agony. And each word in this section to that end, it's packed with meaning and with history. The author writes in verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. What he says in Hebrew, the Hebrew word that translates steadfast love, is that the chesed of the Lord never ceases. And the chesed of God in the Bible is a word that is used again and again and again to describe his faithful covenant love for his people. This word calls to mind all of God's promises and all of his actions of mercy in history toward his people. And as the author says these words, he's remembering God's promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob all the way back in the book of Genesis. He's looking to the way that God faithfully worked even 400 years after the last of those men died to rescue Israel and Egypt, uh, to rescue Israel from the land of Egypt through the person of Moses. He remembers that God's work was through Joshua after Moses to lead Israel into the promised land exactly as he had promised to the forefathers. He remembers God's promises to King David and the blessings that God poured out on the nation of Israel to grow it and to expand it, to bring flourishing there under his rule. He remembers God's patience even with his people, sending prophets and warning them again and again and again about their sin. Though they continued to churn away, God continued to pursue and to draw back, to give opportunity for repentance. And even here, Reflecting on the ruin of Jerusalem, as the author remembers the chesed of the Lord, he remembers God's promises through Moses that were given more than 700 years earlier. His promises that after punishing Israel, if they continued in their sin, he would still restore. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 4 and verse 6. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. The curse that Jerusalem had experienced and which was prophesied so far before. When these things come upon you, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and when you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then... Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. He'll make it soft, no longer hard and obstinate, rejecting the love of God, but he'll make it soft. He'll circumcise your heart and the heart of your offsprings that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see, friends, God is God. And his love never changes. God is a God who's faithful to everything that he has promised in his word. As C.S. Lewis once said, though our feelings come and go, God's love for us does not. 
But the author doesn't just remember the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He also looks in verse 22 and says this. He remembers that his mercies never come to an end. What the author remembers here is that not only is God faithful in his committed love to his people and to fulfill his promises, he is also infinitely compassionate and merciful. He remembers that God is a God who's like a father when the father sees his child in pain. He knows that God is a God whose own heart breaks and aches because of the suffering of his people. You know, there's nothing in my life that gets the attention of me like the cries of my children. They start crying, whether it's in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day, and my heart's first reaction is to jump, to be disturbed, to look toward them in their pain and their agony, especially for my daughter Pepper who, in the beginning of this year, went through hundreds of epileptic seizures. And today when she cries, I have all of that pain and all that suffering of hers in mind, and my impulse is to run to her, to pick her up in my arms, to hold her tight, to hold her close, and to care for her. And in a similar way, in remembering God's mercy, the author is calling to mind the way that God hears the cries and sees the tears of his people. And how throughout history he has been moved again and again and again to action on their behalf because he cares about them and their suffering. And as the author begins to find hope then in recalling who God is, in recalling his past, his past faithfulness, in remembering his character of love and mercy towards his people, he has hope. He begins to have hope. He moves from despair to hope as he remembers who God is, and he begins to instruct the people that he's been writing to. He instructs the, re- he instructs the readers of this poetry in verses 25 to 30, and he says this to them. He says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him, The Lord is good. Friends, you need to hear this this morning. And where you are at in your own suffering, he is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. As I read this passage, I imagine the author considering his own experience of despair and hopelessness and suffering. I imagine him realizing that there was a specific moment when things began to change for him, where he began to have hope again. Friends, I think he's remembering that it was in his despair. That was when God met him with the incredible grace of reminding him of his own steadfast love. You see, he had to be brought low in order for God to begin to raise him up. In verse 28, he writes, Let him sit alone in silence when the burden, I I think it's implied here, of suffering, when the burden of suffering is laid on him. 
Let him sit alone in silence. He's saying this because he knows that in sitting in our suffering and being laid low, that's the place. That's the place that we finally realize how desperately we need God and how sinful we have been to again and again to turn away from him. And it's there that we begin to reach out to him to whisper a cry for deliverance, to turn to him in repentance and in trust. And friends, as we reach out to him, we have every reason to have hope. Why? Well, because the author tells us about God's heart for us. Because the author reveals what God's own heart is towards his children in verses 31 to 33. He says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Take hope, have courage, for he does not afflict from his heart. He does not grieve the children of men from his heart. Friends, these three verses are the center of the center of the book of Lamentations. They're the high water mark of the author's understanding of who God is in the midst of his suffering and his pain. And what do they say? They say that God's actions of judgment are not the actions of a spiteful God who delights to harm, but the actions of a loving Father who wounds in order to heal, who afflicts in order to draw us to himself to receive his mercy and his kindness. He does not afflict from his heart. He does not grieve the children of men from his heart. Commenting on these verses, Dean Ortland writes this in his excellent book, Gentle and Lowly. He says, There is an implicit premise in this verse and an explicit statement. The implicit premise is that God is indeed the one who afflicts, He is in control, friends, of everything. But the explicit statement, Dane says, is that he does not do it from his heart. Throughout Lamentations, God's absolute sovereignty is everywhere at play. But the theological bullseye of the whole book, the center of the center of the center, verse 33, we are told that God does not bring such pain from his heart. And Ortland isn't alone here. It's not just him who thinks this. Jonathan Edwards similarly says this, his God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He had rather that they should churn and continue in peace. He is well pleased if they forsake their evil ways, that he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy. And judgment is his strange work. See, what Jonathan Edwards means by judgment being God's strange work is that God's heart is centrally bent on mercy, not on judgment. That the normal desire and action of God's heart is mercy and compassion. Though, when necessary, he's willing to judge. God loves his children. He loves his creation. Though he punishes, what he desires most of all is to draw us near, to gather us in his arms, to comfort, and to shower sinful people with grace and with mercy. Friends, we don't have time to look this morning 
carefully at the rest of the chapter, though it is full of excellent things. So please read it and pray about it as you go this week. But what I want to drive home today is that the uniqueness of the personal God of the Bible, the uniqueness of his character of mercy and compassion and love, it makes every difference in our suffering. To pick up Gareth's quotation from last week, I don't know much, but this much I know. Not only is God sovereign in suffering, but this much I know. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and his mercies never come to an end. And the question for us is this, in our suffering, will we heed the author? Knowing God's good character, will we sit in our suffering and patiently wait for him? Will we seek him, or will we withdraw from him? Will we trust that he is a loving father who is working even in the midst of our agony for our good? Or will we turn away from him? Friends, I need this reminder every day. I need you to encourage me with the words of Scripture and the character of this God. And you need me to encourage you as well because we are so hard-hearted. Friends, we have every reason to wait for the Lord with incredible confidence. We have more reasons even than the author of Lamentations has. Why? Well, because years after the author of Lamentations placed his hope in God's character and his steadfast love and mercy, God fulfilled his promises. At the fullest of time, according to God's plan from before the foundation of the world, God fulfilled his steadfast love and mercy by becoming human in the person of Jesus Christ, by entering this world of darkness and suffering and pain in order to begin to fill it with hope and with love and with light. Unto us a son is given. Unto us a child is born. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is mighty God. He is a name above all names before whom every knee will bow. And he was born as a baby. As mercy and compassion entered this world. As he lived the entirety of his life with an overflowing heart of mercy and love towards sinners. And then we've rejected his love again and again and again. Jesus died. The judge became the judged that we would be forgiven and reconciled to him. He died that we might die to the sin that destroys us, that robs us of, robs us of life itself. So we would be filled by his spirit with his own life so that we would love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our minds. Through his life, he makes us receptive to the love of God, not to reject it any longer, but to have it poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given us, to cause us to overflow with that abundant love towards others. And because of Jesus, we are never alone in our suffering. Because of Jesus, we've been reconciled, unified with God, so that his spirit is now with us, so that he will never leave us or forsake us. No matter what you are going through, he is with you by his spirit, speaking the words of truth to you, speaking his love and his compassion and his mercy to you through his word prompted by the spirit. Friends, the question for us is, will we listen? <laughs> will we listen to him? When we hear the still, small voice, 
and move from despair to hope. Friends, I want to close just by reading some scripture to you. from Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, take heart. His steadfast love never ceases, and his mercies never come to an end. Lord, we just ask right now, in conclusion, would you move our hearts to trust? Would you move our hearts to believe your promises? To see your beauty and your compassion and your love in Jesus? Comfort us, we pray. Give us hope and give us courage. In Jesus' name.